Welcome back to episode 80 of the Professor Penn podcast. David Penn here. Glad to see you again. Hope you're having a good week. Today, I think, is 12th. Yep, 12 13. It's December 13th. This will be going up on the 14th, 7 30. Good evening to you. One of the great things about life is sometimes you get do overs. I like that piece of music. That's Dave Grohl. He started the Foo Fighters in 1994. He was a founding member. But this piece was Nirvana. And that was the voice of Kurt Cobain. And I wanted to clarify that. Get a do-over. It's great. Got another shot at it. That is an awesome piece of music. It's Drums of War. Drums of War. Drums of War for one people. Tonight we're going to talk about one people, how our culture evolves, and we're going to weave back in more information about how we're going to evolve our culture and create a distinction and an alternative to empire, to crushing debt, to unrestricted immigration, the things that are going to destroy the country I love, brought to me by the uni party, the political party I belong to. Oh, what's great about America? Politics is prosecuted by those who show up. And this podcast, the Professor Penn podcast, really is for those who want to show up. No, I try to be entertaining. I say that, and I like it, and it's fun. I put a lot of time into it. But this is really about getting us all motivated, as Susan said, to get into the streets. Get in the streets. I want to thank Free People Radio, Truth seeking media, truth seekers. We're not buying a narrative. We're looking for the truth from all of the street corners. You know, the people we don't agree with have a perspective. It's different than our own or different than mine, I should say. I don't want to speak for you. That would be a distortion. It's different than my own. It doesn't mean that I necessarily dislike these people personally. Uh, I'm a very embracing person, and I'm very non-conflict orientated at this point in my life. Although, as my brother Tom found out at the State Central Committee, when called upon to move, I still move like a cat. So good evening, Tom. Thanks for noticing. Got props from a lot of people. Uh, and I want to clarify a few things today as we move along the, the uh, program. PrecinctStrategy.com, our, our, one of our inspiring patriots, Dan Schultz. Dan has put everything together that you need. I'm talking about Minnesota, but this concept of political activism by American citizens works in every state, every state. So if you're in Kentucky or if you're in Montana or North Dakota and you're watching and we're growing this audience, you can organize the same activity in your own unique way. We're all different, but the basic contour of how to get this done is getting clear to lots of people throughout the country. And what it mainly takes is people getting involved. Now, this podcast needs your help. There's shorts coming. Uh, we have to push the content out to our social networks. I mean by email, 
by text message because the algos are not going to support uh, the growth of Free People Radio or Please Call Me Crazy or the Professor Penn Podcast. It really has to be something that's driven by American citizens. I'm asking for you to do something for this podcast if you like the content, which is just share it with your friends. Bring a friend or two or three or four or ten to the premieres and get them in the live chat. And let's build this community together because we have a goal. And for those of you that want to communicate with me, I want you to know I want to communicate with you. And at Getter, it's Professor Penn USA. That's Professor Penn USA on Getter. And when we get over to uh, X, it's a little different on X, and I'm looking at them because I don't want to screw this up. It's the Prof Pen Podcast at the Prof Pen Podcast. Prof being the abbreviation for professor. Hit that like button, subscribe, leave your comments, and I will answer them. Go back and look at my answers. This is how we build the community when there's no support for it being built. But we want to thank YouTube for giving us the platform. We're learning their rules, but we're on many other platforms. I was uh, talking to my aforementioned friend, Tom, like two hours before the premiere on Tuesday night. He goes, I'm listening to your podcast. I go, how are you doing that? He goes, it's on Spotify. It actually premiered on Spotify before the premiere on YouTube. Something for my young producer to think about. Interesting, isn't it? See, we're doing a little housekeeping as we go on down the highway here. I have so many people I want to thank. I want to thank my my political mentor, Mr. Dave Kay, for his ongoing uh, dialogue with me. Uh, a lot of people don't understand Dave. I understand him. This guy is a, is, a, is a deep well of intent and a deep well of knowledge. And uh, he's a professor. And we have very great dialogue, and he has a lot to offer our movement. So I want to thank Dave for supporting us. I want to thank Rob and Scott for making their facilities available to us. We are going to start. And if you're in Minnesota, if you're in Minnesota, and you're an officer of the Minnesota Republican Party, particularly if you're a state central committee delegate or intend to be a delegate to our state convention that's going to be next May where we're going to endorse a candidate for U.S. Senate. Please find me on those social channels or go to supportatarget.com and let us get a monthly Zoom call going. These people that sit on the stage at State Central Committee, like they're, they're kind of Saddam Hussein wannabes. I mean, they're really not Saddam. Saddam was a baller, okay? This guy wasn't kidding around. I mean, they took they didn't just throw people out of the meetings at Saddam's political gatherings. They threw them out, and then they shot them in the backyard. That is dictatorship. What we have now is a soft dictatorship where people use the rules, and they use location, and they use intimidation, like this bully, Dave Osmick, that they put up as the convention leader you know what? How unnecessary. And I'm going to say this again to Dave Osmick, to David Han, to Alex Plekish, to Barb Sutter, to Donna Bergstrom, all you people on the stage. When we get control of the party, we're not going to run you out 
like you ran out the Ron Paul people, like you ran out the Tea Party people, or co-opted their movements. We're not going to do that. We want to be in communion with you. You just can't be in leadership because you're either dumb or evil. I don't know which. I do not care. But when you look at it like I look at it, that we're $34 trillion in debt, that our border is open, and that we've been in a forever war my entire life, and you look at that, and you continue to promote the status quo, which really is kind of a fascism, a soft fascism, which is now fighting with a hard communism for control of the steering wheel, both of these ideologies, godless and totalitarian, and you're supporting that, you got to go. Now, I'm going to make an admission, and many of you in the audience are going to make an admission with me. I remember with great fondness when George Bush, the elder, the elder attacked with the United Nations, Iraq, war number one after Saddam occupied Kuwait during the presidency of George H.W. Bush, and I remember it like it was yesterday, and I was so proud of my military. Many friends of mine were there. It was fantastic, fantastic. And when George the Junior, W, the little guy, was elected in 2000, and the towers came down, and we were united as one people because we'd been attacked, and they rolled into Iraq again and deposed Saddam this time. I stayed up all night watching. I voted for both of these Bushes. I supported the Republican Party. I did not have, I mean, I knew this was going on, but I, you know, I looked at the choices between Democrat and Republican, and I was still caught up in this mindset that there was a difference. I believed there was a difference. But I know now, after a long life of observing this, that there is no difference. That when Tom, please tell it like it is Emmer, shows up with Representative Fishbach, a actress who pretends to support the America First movement, but she's a unipartyist to the max, when these people show up and act like they're Republicans, like there's a difference. See, at this point, I know they're completely full of it. So they're not going to con me. The long con's over. But my point is, because I know you're watching, all of us come to grips with this in our own time. Now, part of the problem with getting old is we get arrogant and proud, and we don't like to look in the mirror and go, oh, I've made a major mistake. It requires some humility to get on your knees and beg for forgiveness, which I've done many times in my life. And that's because I believe in God. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating the light and the dark. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating me in your image. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for making me an American. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for making me free. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for healing the blind. 
Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for feeding the people. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for releasing the bound. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for raising up the downtrodden. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for creating the heavens and earth. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for providing for all my needs. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for directing my path. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for our American courage. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for crowning America with glory. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for restoring strength to the weary. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds. Thank you for sending your only begotten Son to die on the cross that I might be saved. Forgive us, Father, for we have sinned. Pardon us, our King, for we have willfully transgressed. For you pardon and forgive. Blessed are you, God and King of all worlds, who is gracious and ever willing to forgive. One of the great things about that live chat is we get some great ideas shared. And I suppose by the time this podcast is coming to its end, I hope 30 years from now, God willing, all we're going to do is pray because people are going to keep adding to the prayer. And if we did that, we'd win the power of prayer, the greatest strength that we, the American people, have. And we need to rediscover it because it's been stripped away from us by a Darwinist education. You know, I remember Barack Obama when he said, our our salvation is based on the group. I thought to myself, oh, this guy's a communist. My salvation is between me and God, and so is yours, and so is every unipartyist, neocon bastard that's leading the country to ruin. Please repent. Please, as I have repented, because at one time I was with you, but I've been saved. Now, there's been a lot of change in our country. This, this uh, period of uh, time, we're talking about Ronald Reagan and who these neocons are, where did they come from, what's in their mind? There's been a lot of change, a lot of change in our culture. And as I was saying in the last podcast, Ronald Reagan perfected something He perfected something that John Kennedy didn't have, Lyndon Baines Johnson didn't have, Richard Nixon certainly didn't have. Jimmy Carter had it, but he was a Democrat. President Reagan perfected the wrapping of debt and the empire in the cloth of faith because he spanned both eras in American history where our country was focused on faith and then became focused on science. And that change really was reflected throughout our society. Elliot, can you play number two?
What a jam, huh? That's what you call in the groove. James Brown, soul brother number one. I was watching him, but you know, I'm a little different. I know a lot of the general culture watch James Brown, but James Brown message, his message, his audience, it was black America. And that music at the time was underappreciated by the general community. In fact, at one time, they couldn't even get this up on radio. I mean, you know, the radio stations just rejected it. And the way James Brown moved and grooved, the way he sang, it was just uh, beyond, beyond what the general American could accept or understand. But he cracked the seal, and this started to come into our mainstream culture. Let's take a look at number three. Okay, so I'm going to make a point, and I'm entitled to have an opinion. And there, there, I want the my audience, my viewers and listeners, to understand. I'm I'm speaking in generalities, talking about culture, not specifically. And I'm not saying this is the truth. This is the search for truth. But what James Brown brought forth had limits, and Michael Jackson got the complete culture in just entranced, just he was as big as it could. He was su- the superstar of superstars, the king of pop. I was there when it happened, and there was no pushback or there was no inability to accept his music because he took that James Brown bass, which of course has a longer tradition, and he brought it to the mainstream, and it was accepted. It was accepted by everyone. And if you were in that period, you realize that there was other things that were going on, not just the cultural healing or the cultural diffusion or the influence of what was essentially a black art form, an African-American art form, was now becoming an American art form, Unbelievable. And I was, I was learning how to play music at that time. And I was a classically trained violinist and I ran into this music and I said, Whoa, that's enough of the Paganini. I got to get some of this James Brown going. And as a matter of fact, in the early 1980s, when this was going on, professor Penn owned the first 
digital audio recording studio in Minnesota. Had a beautiful 24-track Sony digital audio board. I mean, this was cutting edge. And uh, I had, um, for example, Prince's guitar player, Des Dickerson, used to record at my studio all the time. And Prince came forth. And, you know, I was trying to make it in my career. And I saw Prince and I said, okay, tire business for me. Let's play number four. Could have been jealousy. Could have been the fact that when uh, Prince opened his Paisley Park Studios, it crushed Energy Audio. Could have been the fact that um, Prince had a certain gender-bending thing, which I didn't get in the early 80s. I couldn't get it at the time. It took me many, many years, maybe 20 years, before I discovered his musical catalog and immersed myself in it because it's brilliant. So we, we got James Brown, and then we get Michael Jackson going out to the general audience, and then we got Prince coming in at a completely different trajectory, uh, a little gender bending, and but, you know, just diffusing these ideas through our culture of music, of, of taking this essential African-American art form and making it an American art form. This is cool. And now I'm going to play something for you that's mind-boggling. I'm not even going to comment on it. In fact, if you really want to take the test, close your eyes and listen to this, and then open your eyes midway through, and you will be surprised. Let's play number five. I see the crystal raindrops fall, and the beauty of it all is when the sun comes shining through. To make those rainbows in my mind when I think of you sometime, I want to spend some time with you. Just the two of us We can make it if we try Just the two of us Just the two of us Just the two of us Building castles in the sky Just the two of us You and I We look for love, no time for tears Wasted water, all that is It don't make no flowers grow 
things might come to those who wait, not to those who wait too late. We gotta go for all we know, just the two of us. We can make it if we try, just the two of us, just the two of us. Just the two of us Didn't cast us in the sky Just the two of us You and I Oh, no, no That's soul. I remember when I was 21 years old and I started running into this African-American art form. I said, I got to do this. This is cool. I got to dance like this. I got to move like this. I got to fight like Muhammad Ali. I got to be able to sing like James Brown. I got to tell jokes like Richard Pryor. Look at the diffusion. Look at this. This man has soul. And I'm going to almost guarantee you that if this kid was born in 1952, he couldn't do that. This is, this is, this is the diffusion of an energy that makes us into one people. We are one people. Something the neocons... And Min GOP have not yet embraced. The evidence is there was maybe five African-American and black people at the state central committee out of uh, three, 400 people. Five? Come on. That is not reflective of Minnesota's population or the involvement of black people in politics. These people don't have any soul. They can't move. They can't groove. They got no cool. But here at Free People Radio, if you're following Free People Radio, Truth Seeking Media, Royce White, hey, Republican Party, we're going to get some cool. So if you're 462 years old, a crypt keeper, get off the stage. Your time's up. And you know, while this is going on on the Republican side, oh, the Democrats, they got it going on. They got all of the media, they got all the entertainment industry. They got it all going on. And here in SD45, I just have to take another run at the Dr. Kelly Morrison, who has declared her candidacy to inherit the mantle of Representative Dean Phillips, who's had the audacity to challenge President Biden. Or maybe it was an inside job, as you can see from the news. I'm not going to cover it because it's not of any interest to me. I don't care what those people do. I care what we do in this community. I care about sacred honor emerging from the American people and going back into our institutions so that we can save this country for my children. Yes, this is where I get a little self-interested. I have five of them, and I want them to grow old. So I'm interested in what we're doing here as a community. But here in 45, Senate District 45 in Minnesota, we got the Dr. Kelly Morrison. Her theme song, her tagline for her campaign is, let's put a doctor in the house. Elliot, could you play number six, please? In one way or another, we are so far, globally, we are so far above the population and the consumption levels, which can be supported by this planet, that I know in one way or another it's going to come back down. So I don't hope to avoid that. Uh, I hope that it can occur in a, a, a civil 
way. I, uh, I, and I mean civil in a, in a special way, I, peaceful. Peace doesn't mean uh, that everybody's happy, but it means that conflict isn't solved through violence, through, through force, uh, but rather in other ways. And so uh, that's what I hope for. Uh, that we can, I mean, the planet can support something like a billion people, maybe two billion, depending on how much liberty and how much material consumption you want to have. If you want more liberty and more consumption, you have to have fewer people. And conversely, you can have more people. I mean, we could even have eight or nine billion, probably, if we have a very strong dictatorship, which is smart. It's, unfortunately, you never have smart dictatorships. They're always stupid. So, but if you had a smart dictatorship, and a low standard of living, you can have it. But, but we want to have freedom and we want to have a high sentence, so we're going to have a billion people. And we're now at seven, so we have to get back down. I hope that this can be slow, relatively slow, and that it can be done in a way which is relatively equal, uh, you know, so that people share uh, the experience and you don't have a few rich, you know, trying to force everybody else to, to deal with it. So those are my hopes. I mean, these are pretty pessimistic hopes, you know, but I mean, that's, that's what lies ahead. Uh, you know, if you don't know this guy, please introduce yourself to him. That's Dr. Dennis Meadows. In certain circles, he's quite famous. He was part of the Club of Rome, and he is a realist about population in his own thinking. And if you listen carefully, he said, we got to go from 7 billion, now it's 8 billion, down to a billion people, maybe 2 billion. You know, uh, how do you get from 8 billion people down to 2 billion people to save the earth? Of course, we love the earth so much, we hate people. This guy's famous in scientific circles. He's a doctor, he's a PhD. And, uh, you know, Kelly Morrison has two really important contributions to Minnesota politics. Number one, she was the author of the first bill passed when the Democrat took control of Minnesota governance. And that first bill protected a woman's right to choose woman's reproductive health. And it included the right of a woman to abort her baby at nine months at birth. That's, uh, you know, Great. And now she's working on, in addition to her effort to become a congressperson, because we need a doctor in the House, like Dr. Dennis Meadows, she's working on a euthanasia bill so that people my age, when we start to suffer, because, you know, the end is you know, not easy, we can take a pill and just die. I mean, who, you know, what the hell? Why we have to go through all the work of trying to stay alive when we can just end it all when problems come? You know, because the, uh, the suffering has nothing to do with the relationship between man and God or woman and God because there's no God, because these people are scientists. And this is this long-term controversy or, you know, battle between science and religion. And, of course, religion has lost this battle 
because we all love the benefits of science and, you know, we're getting it. And, and Kelly and this uh, Kelly Morrison is saying that she needs to take this ideology uh, to the House of Representatives because she'd be the only, uh, you know, woman's reproductive health doctor in the Congress. It's very important. And this goes all the way through, you know, Minnesota politics because we have Senator Amy Klobuchar, who is aligned on this issue with Kelly Morrison, and Senator Tina Smith, who's aligned with Kelly Morrison. And we have a very leftist, liberal state where a woman's right to choose is deeply enshrined in our political culture. And this is the one issue that the Democrat is standing on now, can't stand on the economy, can't stand on immigration, can't stand on ending war. But the idea of democracy, a woman's right to choose, is the linchpin of the current political season. And we have to learn how to deal with this as one people, as one people. We have to learn how to deal with this because it's a huge wedge issue. It's been a wedge issue since I was a teenager, 73, Roe versus Wade. And we're just, you know, knocking ourselves out over this decade after decade. It's time for us to move beyond this because, you know, as Dennis Meadows says, we got to get the eight, from $8 billion down to $2 billion. That seems to me to be much more important. And, you know, to the people that are watching me, you know, Dennis Meadows is a male scientist. You know, science is somewhat of a patriarchy. And the patriarchy of science says we have to reduce the population. So how great is it that we have abortion and euthanasia to get that job done brought to us by the patriarchy? Something for us all to think about. And let me tell you how deep this patriarchy goes. It really goes deep. Play number seven, please. Play number seven. You're going to like this. You're going to recognize this name. And herein lies the dilemma that we all face. Let me illustrate. Improved public health has caused the world's infant mortality rate to decline by 60% over the last 40 years. In the same period, the world's average life expectancy has increased from 46 years in 1950s to 63 years today. This is a development which as individuals, we can only applaud. However, the result of these positive measures is a world population that has risen during the same short period of time geometrically to almost six billion people and could easily exceed six billion, eight billion by the year 2020. The negative impact of population growth on all of our planetary ecosystems is becoming appallingly evident. In particular, the rapid growing exploitation of the world's supply of energy and water is a matter of deep concern. And the toxic byproducts of widespread industrialization have increased atmospheric pollution to dangerous levels. Unless nations will agree to work together to tackle these cross-border challenges posed by population growth, overconsumption of resources, and environmental degradation, the prospects for a decent life on our planet will be threatened. The recent UN meeting in Cairo is appropriately focused on one of these key issues, population growth.
But the controversies which have erupted at the conference illustrate the problem of coming to grips with issues that are deeply divisive and which have a profound moral dimension. The United Nations can and should play an essential role in helping the world find a satisfactory way of stabilizing world population and stimulating economic development in a manner that is sensitive to religious and moral considerations. Economic growth is, of course, an in inevitable corollary of a growing population and is essential to improve standards of living. But without careful coordination, unrestrained economic growth poses further threats to our environment. This was a major subject of discussion at the conference in Rio de Janeiro on the environment two years ago. The focus then was on sustainable growth and global development. It was pointed out at the conference that growth is most efficiently managed by the private sector. But regulation of the process by national governments and international bodies is also needed. And once again, the United Nations should certainly be among the catalysts and coordinators of this process. But in addition, given the importance of unencumbered international trade in stimulating and facilitating economic growth, some of the newer economic entities, such as the European Economic Community, NAFTA, APEC, and most importantly, GATT, now known as the World Trade Organization, are probably best suited to play a major role in ensuring sustainable development. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm not going to comment on this too much. You know, I was out with um, a very famous, prominent politician this week. Who I, I'm going to send this to, and he's going to watch this, and he asked for confidentiality, and of course I'm going to prefer that to him. And he looked at me and he said, what about this? And this is a very educated man. And I said to him, you know, I could talk to you. See, <laughs> as I've said many times, Professor Penn rejected the track of academia going. I mean, I went to a East Coast college. I just told these people to go bite a hog in the ass. But if you went all the way through, like I have a daughter right now at Columbia, and she's going to probably graduate from there and then go to graduate school, no matter how much she tells me she's listening to me, I know that she's being altered and in acculturated. She's being altered through a process of acculturation into this worldview. This is the worldview of our academics. And I said to this uh, friend of mine who's a very prominent politician, I said, you know, you got to figure it out for yourself. I can show you the source material, but I can't read it to you. I can't pitch it to you. I can't get you to understand it because you're an educated man and you have your own opinions. You know the history of intellectual thought. You have to read it for yourself. You have to, I said, spend a year and read everything by yourself. And I'm going to say this to all of us. It's very easy to sit back and passively consume a 
podcast, and I appreciate having the opportunity to share this with you, and I thank you for your listenership and your viewership. But I urge every one of you to find this source material and read it for yourself because your insight and your will will be strengthened when you connect the dots on your own. So we have to find it for ourselves. I mean, nobody can give it to you. you got to put it together for yourself. And we've got these neocons that are acculturated into this worldview, and they have wrapped this worldview in the Republican Party in the cloth of faith to varying degrees. And in the Democrat Party, they've wrapped it in climate change, which, of course, is over in the Republican Party, too. You know, climate change, global climate crisis. They've wrapped it in, you know, climate change. It's a, a big issue. And social equity, which, you know, spans the whole uni party. And then most importantly, in this election season, democracy equals women's right to reproductive health. And we're going to work through this. It's four street corners. But I think if people connect the dots about what's really going on here, there could be a big sea change in how people see these things. And then we had these great salesmen. You know, Reagan was so smooth. Man. I mean, Tom Emmer is Reagan light. Emmer's good. He's not Reagan, but he's good. Some of these people are great. Play number eight. Mr. President, in talking about the continuing recession tonight, you have blamed mistakes of the past, and you have blamed the Congress. Does any of the blame belong to you? Yes, because for many years I was a Democrat. <laughs> you know, sometimes people tell the truth in a joke, okay? Forever wars, deficits, and unrestricted immigration is post-World War II Democrat liberal order, of which it is my theory of the case that President Reagan so revered with the neocon Republican circles was the progenitor of our modern expression of this political philosophy. And, you know, he was so awesome, awesome in... Uh, you know, how he expressed himself. He was a great actor, a great spokesperson. You know, Tom, never told the truth, Emmer, needs to aspire and watch Reagan clips. Let's play number 10. No, nope, excuse me, number nine. Number nine. Next Tuesday, all of you will go to the polls. We'll stand there in the polling place and make a decision. I think when you make that decision, it might be well if you would ask yourself, are you better off than you were four years ago? Is it easier for you to go and buy things in the stores than it was four years ago? Is there more or less unemployment in the country than there was four years ago? Is America as respected throughout the world as it was? Do you feel that our security is as safe, that we're as strong as we were four years ago? And if you answer all of those questions, yes, why then I think your choice is very obvious to who you'll vote for. If you don't agree, 
If you don't think that this course that we've been on for the last four years is what you would like to see us follow for the next four, then I could suggest another choice that you have. So just to review the bidding, President Nixon and his advisor, the recently departed Henry Kissinger, took the United States dollar off the gold standard in 72, and in 72 they also reached out and started relations with communist China. This was the beginning of our current political economy on a worldwide basis. And then, you know, uh, Nixon, they didn't have complete control of him. Oh, he went over the Watergate deal. And people were not too happy with Gerald Ford, who was appointed to replace him for pardoning Nixon. And the country had had enough of all the wars and the BS. And they elected a man with sacred honor, honor, Jimmy Carter, who was a leftist. You know, I'm not saying I like Jimmy Carter. I'm just saying the guy was honest. And America was not ready for honesty. And the Federal Reserve, our technocrats that run our economy, jacked the interest rate up to 18% in 79. And Jimmy Carter was bye-bye. And here comes Reagan because he's saying, well, you know, hey, if your life's better, you know, your life's not going to be better when the interest rate is 18%. You know, it wasn't Jimmy Carter's fault. He was a victim of the country embracing the guns and butter at the same time philosophy, which typifies this neocon outlook that we're fighting in the uni party. We're fighting it because it's, 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 it, it has a bad ending. It's like, you know, the ending's going to be bad for we the people because it's not about we the people. It's about the post-World War II Democrat liberal order. Climate change, whoa. Social equity, whoa. And democracy, whoa. That's what it's about. And all of that makes me poor, poor, poor. That's why we played those two pieces, Dennis Meadows and Mr. Rockefeller, because we have to understand what this whole Democrat liberal order is heading towards. You know, eight, two, six is the gap. That's the delta. That means six billion people are going to go bye-bye. How's that going to happen? So Reagan was super smooth. He really had a belt-high fastball because the Fed destroyed the leftist liberal anti-war Carter, who, by the way, served in the nuclear Navy. So he actually was qualified to be anti-war because he understood how the military worked. And Reagan had, you know, courage. And I'm not saying everything about Reagan was bad. I liked a lot of things about Reagan, but the, the country had a memory of John Kennedy being killed. Martyr number one, and then Malcolm. Of course, these people didn't know anything about Malcolm. Probably glad he was dead. Martin Luther King, ah, that was a transitionary figure. Some people thought, oh, that was bad. And then Bobby Kennedy, senior. And then look what happened uh, right at the beginning of Reagan's presidency. Can you play number 10? Mrs. Reagan, as we mentioned earlier, went to the hospital immediately after the shooting. Secret Service agents uh, have emptied out of this building to go to George Washington Hospital to find out what is happening to their colleague who was hit, as well as the president whom they protect. Now, all we know at this point is, as you know, the condition of the president is stable, and further announcements on his condition will be made from the hospital a mile from the White House. Frank? 
Thank you, Bill. Yes, David Gergen said that uh, his condition was stable, but we have had uh, another report, as I mentioned a moment ago, from a doctor at the hospital who said uh, one lung of the president has partially uh, collapsed, but that he is in uh, good condition. We understand, too, that the wounded Secret Service agent has now been tentatively identified as Timothy J. McCarthy. Tim McCarthy. We don't know the name of the uh, wounded District of Columbia police officer. And Jim Brady's condition, uh, there has been no further word on that. Uh, his head was bandaged uh, as he uh, was wheeled into the, uh, into the George Washington University Hospital here this afternoon. Uh, as Dave Gergen says, uh, Jim Baker told him that the president actually walked into the hospital. He was not uh, carried in. Now we're going to go back to a, a slow motion and uh, move it frame by frame so that we can witness this incident once again. Here's the president's already outside. Now it's about to happen. The man in the foreground is Mike Deaver. The president disappears slightly. There, it's happened. Watch the president. Stop it. Can't really tell whether he's reacting to shock or pain or surprise, whatever it is, keep going. Now here is a later picture of the president at the same, well this is still photo, yes, of the president being put into the car. That's the chief of his Secret Service detail there on his left. Remember it like it was yesterday. National trauma. And you know when Reagan, he walked into the hospital and he was making jokes with the surgeons trying to make sure that they were Republicans. But, you know, he almost died. I mean, in, in fact, the, the seriousness of his injury from that gunshot was really downplayed at the time. Uh, he, he was, you know, just centimeters from being bye-bye. And, you know, we embraced him because he lived. You know, like uh, George Gipp, the win-win for the Gipper, the Gipper did not come off the bed. The Gipper died. Reagan came off the bed. And he, you know, he was embraced. I mean, this made his presidency, his political capital was unquantifiable. I mean, when he appeared before the Congress to give a speech, the, the, you know, the, 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 the State of the Union address, I mean, people were ecstatic that our president had survived an assassination. We'd just gone through four martyrdoms. And we were so happy. This gave him great power. And the guy was smooth. He had great timing. Play number 11, please. You already are the oldest president in history. And some of your staff say you were tired after your most recent encounter with Mr. Mr. Uh, Mondale. Um, I recall yet that President Kennedy had to go for days on end with very little sleep during the Cuba Missile Crisis. Is there any doubt in your mind? that you would be able to function in such circumstances? Not at all, Mr. Truitt, and I, and I want you to know that also I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit for political purposes my opponent's youth and inexperience. <laughs> Did you know that one? Had you ever seen that one before? Oh, see, now we got, we're bringing back a little history for our young people here. This was the, probably in the history of debates up until Vivek Ramaswamy took Nikki Haley to the woodshed. That was a epic debate moment. 
But this moment, even Mondale, that was Senator Walter Mondale, who was then the vice president under Carter, who was running against Reagan in 84. He was from Minnesota, very prominent Minnesota family. Even he had a laugh. And Reagan just, it was the greatest landslide in American political history because with a headshot like that, hey, what do you expect? And he just continued to be cool. Play number 12. Is it necessary, do you think, that you and Gorbachev like each other at the summit in order to do business? Well, I wasn't going to give him a friendship ring or anything. Uh, uh, no, seriously, I believe this. I, I think she made an observation out of this, and it's probably, and our own people who've been over there, our recent group of senators who met with him, uh, they found him a personable individual. I'm sure I will, too. It is necessary that we love or even like each other. It's only necessary that we are willing to recognize that for the good of the people we represent on this side of the ocean and over there, that everyone will be better off if we can come to some decisions about the threat of war. We're the only two nations in the world, I believe, that can start a world war. And we're the only two that can prevent it. And I think that's a great responsibility to all of mankind, and we'd better take it seriously. Is it necessary? So I think this is fantastic. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm not hegemon. I'm not uniformly opposed to Reagan. I think he had some really great sentiment about controlling nuclear weapons and uh, deconfliction with the Soviet Union, uh, and he went all in on this issue, which scared the young Professor Penn. Uh, but he, you know, he won that that um, that confrontation with the Soviets. In fact, it, it brought down the Soviet Union under his vice president. George Bush the senior just a few years later. But if you look at Reagan, what I'm trying to say is this man had a persona, a gentleness, a wit, a charm, which wrapped the empire and deficit in a kind of goodness that obscured the real evil that was growing in America. And we have this whole generation of Republican Party leaders now that were young, like President, uh, like uh, during President Reagan's era, like Professor Penn was. I was young. They were all young. These people have grown up now, and they have not yet come to the realization that this really was a BS story. That Reagan was able to obscure with this wonderful persona and wit what America was becoming. And now we have inherited this formation of our country that became uh, crystallized or hardened during this period. And uh, these people that are leading the party just can't get beyond this. They want this back. They And, you know, President Trump will say, let's make America great again. This, which was Reagan's theme song, it's kind of bringing back this this idea that we can have empire and deficit and still have faith. And, you know, it's, it's just not true. It just doesn't work. But Reagan did confront the Soviets. And let's play number 13, one of his most famous and most eloquent speeches. General Secretary Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, 
If you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Well, you can't get any more eloquent or any more smooth than that. But who these people were, these were the globalists. Now, this didn't just jump out of, out of nowhere. You know, after World War II, we went over this. If you go back into the history of the Professor Penn podcast, we spent a lot of time talking about, you know, the Atlantic Charter and how President Roosevelt, in exchange for aid to the British, demanded that Churchill give up claim to empire. And... You know, a new empire formed, the Pax Americana Empire, which even Kennedy spoke against. But something, you know, really interesting happened during the Reagan period. The United States and Great Britain really grew close together. The, the prime minister of uh, England at that time, Margaret Thatcher, was very Reagan-esque in her politics. And these two almost had what seemed to be a love affair. The two countries, you know, the the globalists, the, the globalists, the neocon globalists really came out into the limelight. They took their time on the stage. Please play number 14. Start around 121 and stop at 305, please. Here's a scene of uh, President Reagan. He drove up in his own golf cart, walking out by himself. You don't see scenes like this anymore. He's walking up to the helicopter and Margaret Thatcher's going to come out. And, you know, he looks like a guy that's meeting his girlfriend at the airport. I remember when I was young, uh, you know, I'd go meet my girlfriend at the airport and waiting for her to come down the, the stairs, and I was so excited to see her, and it was such an emotional moment. And this evokes those kind of scenes. Oh, she's going to come. Her entourage is, oh, there, there's the military, so smart and snappy, and he's standing there. He's dressed casual. He's so excited. And he's actually going to embrace the Prime Minister of Great Britain, of England. Oh, look at that. They're going to hug. Isn't that wonderful? Like a little bit of a love affair. And he's going to take her off by himself now. They're walking together. He's got his arm around her waist. It seems a little bit lovely, doesn't it? What a lovely relationship. The Empire, Great Britain, home to the Darwinists. Charles Darwin, Spencer, you know, not nice people. Social Darwinists, Galton, member of the Masons, you know, the, the, the seat of all Masonry there in, in England. These people are not what we would call Americans. They're British. Preservers of the empire. Up there they go. Reagan's actually driving the golf cart himself. They're waving. Doesn't that look lovely? What a relationship. These are globalists. These are globalists that seem harmless and friendly and gentle. 
Look at them together, walking along the path together. Just the two of us. Just the two of us, building castles to the sky. Look at that. Wonderful. It's so beautiful. And, you know, we've got these problems today that go all the way back into the Carter administration because these globalists have been at this for a long time. We were watching football. We weren't even paying attention. Play number 15, stop around 203. This is a great one. I bet you haven't seen this one before. Look at that. The Afghans are right in the White House. Holy smokes. Twenty years later, we destroyed their country. Well, we've just held a very useful, I might say brief, but also I'll add a very moving discussion with Chairman Yunus Khalis of the Islamic Union of Mujahideen of Afghanistan and other members of his distinguished delegation. I expressed our nation's continued strong support for the resistance and our satisfaction with the large step the Afghan resistance took toward unity in choosing a chairman for the first time. This new political milestone demonstrates that the people of Afghanistan speak with one voice in their opposition to the Soviet invasion and occupation of their homeland. This increasing unity has already made itself felt on the battlefield. During the past 18 months, the Mujahideen fighting inside the country have improved their weapons, tactics, and coordination. The result has been a, a string of serious defeats for the Soviet elite units, as well as many divisions from the Kabul army. Chairman Collies and his delegation are visiting Washington following the November 10th UN General Assembly vote, which, with a record vote once again, called overwhelmingly for the withdrawal of all foreign troops from Afghanistan. You got to look at that and go, wow. Wow, wow, wow. And how did those towers come down? How did this all happen? Where'd this money go? Who are these people in the White House? Because just 20 years later, they were giving aid and comfort to Osama bin Laden, another CIA asset, like Saddam Hussein was a CIA asset. You know, uh, this globalist thing, globalist thing, you know, we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg. These people are all in business together. We're the dummies that pay for it with our taxes and with our compliance, they're playing a completely different game than what Professor Penn's playing, or I hope what you're playing. The game I'm playing is, you know, how do I get my kids raised healthy? How do I teach them about faith in God? How do I teach them to take care of themselves, to self-govern? Now, that's what I'm concerned about. These people are really off on a completely different track. Wow. You know, anybody who's a student of history and goes back and look at how Afghanistan today is ruled by the Taliban, needs to go back and look at the Carter administration and the Reagan administration and the secret funding of a war against the Soviets, the Soviet Union, that'd be the Russians. 
let's get that Soviet Union thing out of it. It obscures the truth. The Russian Empire invaded Afghanistan and took it over and installed a dictator under their control, a guy named Najibullah, and the RCIA, our Central Intelligence Agency, identified a group of really uh, tough people. I mean, these, these Afghans beat the British Empire two times, and they beat the Soviet Union, the Russians, and now they beat the Americans. These people are like the Vietnamese. They're tough as nails. They self-govern. These people live out in nature. I mean, there's no high-rises there over in Afghanistan. These people are goat herders, and in their spare time, they kill Americans. And guess who taught them how to do it? There it is, right there on the historical record, how this whole thing came about. So on the world stage, President Reagan put a very friendly face on empire, made it warm and fuzzy, like deficits, warm and fuzzy. And his wife, Nancy, went to war, essentially, on the black community. They called it the war on drugs. But guess where the drugs came from? Well, that'd be Afghanistan. And as we're going to talk about a little bit here, it seems like, and I'm going to let you do the research, that this government, that'd be we the people, actually brought the drugs into these communities, got the people hooked, got them on the comeback, and then went to war on them for liking the very drugs that our government provided for them. Isn't that interesting? The war on drugs. Let's play number 16. We speak to you not simply as fellow citizens, but as fellow parents and grandparents and as concerned neighbors. It's back to school time for America's children. And while drug and alcohol abuse cuts across all generations, it's especially damaging to the young people on whom our future depends. So tonight, from our family to yours, from our home to yours. Thank you for joining us. America has accomplished so much in these last few years, whether it's been rebuilding our economy or serving the cause of freedom in the world. What we've been able to achieve has been done with your help, with us working together as a nation united. Now we need your support again. Drugs are menacing our society. They're threatening our values and undercutting our institutions. They're killing our children. From the beginning of our administration, we've taken strong steps to do something about this horror. Tonight, I can report to you that we've made much progress. 37 federal agencies are working together in a vigorous national effort. And by next year, our spending for drug law enforcement will have more than tripled from its 1981 levels. We have increased seizures of illegal drugs. Shortages of marijuana are now being reported. Last year alone, over 10,000 drug criminals were convicted, and nearly $250 million of their assets were seized by the DEA, the Drug Enforcement Administration. And in the most important area, individual use, we see progress. In four years, the number of high school seniors using marijuana on a daily basis has dropped from 1 in 14 to 1 in 20. The U.S. military has cut the use of illegal drugs among its personnel by 67% since 1980. 
These are a measure of our commitment and emerging signs that we can defeat this enemy. But we still have much to do. Despite our best efforts, illegal cocaine is coming into our country at alarming levels, and four to five million people regularly use it. 500,000 Americans are hooked on heroin. One in 12 persons smokes marijuana regularly. Regular drug use is even higher among the age group 18 to 25, most likely just entering the workforce. Today, there's a new epidemic, smokable cocaine, otherwise known as crack. It is an explosively destructive and often lethal substance which is crushing its users. It is an uncontrolled fire. And drug abuse is not a so-called victimless crime. Everyone's safety is at stake when drugs and excessive alcohol are used by people on the highways or by those transporting our citizens or operating industrial equipment. Drug abuse costs you and your fellow Americans at least $60 billion a year. Well, hey, uh, <laughs> here we are. It's uh, 2023. We're still talking about the same thing. Still talking about the same thing. Although for many of these drugs, the decision has become legalize it. Because why should the cartels make all the money when the government needs money? So we're in the process of legalizing these drugs now and making it uh, readily available for American citizens to, well, let's just play number 17. I think this is great. Is there anyone out there who still isn't clear about what doing drugs does? Okay, last time. This is your brain. This is drugs. This is your brain on drugs. Any questions? You know, this is really a, a walk down memory lane for Professor Penn. You know, when they're talking about one in 14 high school kids were using marijuana, I don't know what high school that, that must have been the Catholic high school. The public high school I went to with 1,104 kids that graduated, you know, it was more than one in 14. Let me just put it that way. We used to call this fried, dried, and laid to the side. I mean, people were just, Wild in the streets on the drugs. It was, it was, and this is in the early 70s. And then the crack cocaine thing came in. And, I mean, it's like, wow. Wow. That was a, 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 a tsunami pandemic in the urban communities. You know, a white kid like me could get caught with 100 bucks of, uh, cocaine and they look at you and you go, oh, we're going to take that away from him. And then the cops would go snort it up later in the night. And they'd find a black kid with a couple of rocks and, you know, three times and it was a lifetime imprisonment. I mean, this thing was a war on the black community. So President Reagan had this kind of holy, friendly, genteel, attitude. He could talk about things in a way that was not threatening. You could listen to him. But what he was covering up with that personality was a war on the American people. Forever wars, endless deficits, 
drugs coming in the country. There was a huge immigration problem under President Reagan. In fact, Reagan had immigration reform where he actually gave the illegal immigrants citizenship. These problems that we're experiencing now, it was almost as if they were experimenting at this time. Like, how are the American people going to respond to this? Because, you know, if they pick up pitchforks and clubs, it ain't going to work. But you know what we did? Hey, we got high. And, uh, you know, we chased women and we chased money and we didn't really give a Maybe you want to get that one out. It's a little bit too far. We just didn't care. We were so narcissistic that we really didn't care about each other. Now we're one people. Now we're understanding that our leadership is not caring for our well-being. It's not caring for us. So we're becoming one people again. And I will say again, General George Washington crossed the Delaware, Delaware River on December 25th 1776, that's Christmas Day, a miracle. There's no rest this year. There's no time to eat if you can hear my stomach growling. Good morning to you. And what is the, the, the real high point of the, the Reagan administration? What was the high point, the high point of scandal? Well, there was a great scandal. I'm going to have to ask you, Elia, are you familiar with the Iran-Contra affair? See, so shaking his head, no. Man, if you're missing this thing, you're missing a lot. Iran-Contra. Let me just summarize it in broad terms. Broad terms. The Shah of Iran was a creation of the CIA. The elected leader of Iran, a guy, a, a guy that was elected by the people, he was a leftist, they killed this guy. When I say the, I mean the MI6 and the CIA. They killed him. Mossadegh, they killed him. Go look it up. So Wikipedia is not hiding them. This is not hidden information. This is public knowledge. And they put in place the Shah of Iran. And he ran a brutal, totalitarian police state funded by the United States because he had something we wanted, and that would be called oil. Oil. And, of course, the Iranian people reacted to this totalitarian regime, and they deposed the Shah under the Carter administration during that period in the late 70s, and in his place came the Ayatollah Khomeini. It became the Islamic Republic of Iran. Previously, under the Shah, it was quite westernized. Women did not wear burqas. They did not cover their heads. They showed their skin. It was a westernizing country. And the Ayatollah and the Mullahs brought that whole westernization process to an end. And they had hostages that they took under the Carter administration, which, and this really, between the hostages and 18% interest, you know, Carter was buried under that. And magically, the day Reagan was sworn in as president, the hostages were released. Now, the story is, the Iranians feared Reagan's reprisal, that he was going to bomb them on day one. But the story runs a little deeper than that. Because since Iran had had a long period, decades, of being an American client state, many of their elites were educated in the United States. Many of them were trained at West Point or other military academies. 
Their secret police, the Savak, which was brutal, had a lot of America, American operatives and British operatives working in there. So there was, there was underground ties between the Iranian regime under the Ayatollah and the Western intelligence agencies. And then Saddam Hussein, which we played him on the last episode in 79, at the very same time taking power of the Ba'ath Party in Iraq, is a brutal dictator, also with deep ties to American intelligence and British intelligence, suddenly, out of nowhere, these two countries, Iran and Iraq, went to war. And this was a real war where millions of people died. I mean, this was not a kidding around war. And these people were fighting not really well-armed. I mean, we're talking about, you know, like World War I human waves of attack. And because Iran had been an American client state for decades, its weaponry, which was quite prodigious, was all American created. And they were running out of spare parts. And Carter had put an arms embargo on the Iranians, which Reagan, when he became president, continued. At the same time, in our own hemisphere, the country of Nicaragua had been taken over by a communist regime called the Sandinistas. And Reagan and his cohort of globalist neocons very much objected to a communist regime in Nicaragua, which was under the influence of both the Cubans and the Soviets. So they started funding what was called the Contras, the Contras. And the Contras was you know, kind of like the Cubans that fought at the Bay of Pigs. It was a CIA-trained, a CIA-developed counterinsurgency against the Sandinistas. But under the Carter administration, and during that time of which I was a young adult, we were very war-weary. You know, World War II, Korean War, Vietnam War. You know, war, 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 forever war. And then Carter came in and peace broke out, and there was all this sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and, you know, we were having a good time, and people were saying, that's enough of these wars. And they actually passed in U.S. Congress something called the Boland Amendment, which prevented the Reagan administration from funding the Contras. No, no, that's a Nicaraguan issue. We are the American people. Our name is Paul, and it's between y'all. We're not going to be involved in this. We don't want to be in forever wars. We don't want to be globalists. We got problems at home we need to solve. We want to take care of our inner cities. That's where the Democrat was coming from, which was not a bad place to be at the time. You know, the Democrat was not always the Democrat of today. The Reagan administration was looking for a workaround. They didn't like this constraint on the foreign policy of the United States. The globalists didn't like to have any strings attached to them. And the CIA for sure didn't like it. So they came up with a little scam called, you know, Iran-Contra. And the cover story was because, of course, the Hezbollah of today was the Hezbollah of then. They had American hostages in Lebanon. The cover story was, we're going to deal with this Iranian regime because in Iran, there's Western sympathizers and we want to strengthen them. And we're going to give them 
arms, even though there is an arms embargo, how did they do it? Well, they dialed up our buddies Israel. Israel. And they said to Israel, you have all these weapons from us. Would you please sell a couple billion dollars of these weapons to the Iranians? And then they can use them on the Iraqis. And they were also selling arms to the Iraqis at the same time. They were funding both sides of this war. And I'll tell you why they were doing it. The Israelis loved the fact that two potential antagonists of Israel were destroying each other. And guess what? They did it. They violated the arms embargo. They let the Israelis sell arms to the Iranians. There were middlemen involved that got really rich. The markup was unbelievable. And guess what they did with that markup? It somehow made its way to fund the Contras. Isn't that incredible? There was a secret thing going on here. Nobody knew about it. It was going on right under our noses, and it went on for a very long time. You know, we just counted our military inventory here in the United States, the audit of our Pentagon. They would thought that there was $4 trillion of weapons in stock right here in our warehouses. But when they counted the inventory, half of it could not be found. And the cover story was, oh, the Pentagon's just so big, they can't keep track of all this military hardware. You know, am I supposed to be dumb? Of course I'm supposed to be dumb. Just like men GOP is dependent on we the people to be dumb. Be stupid. You guys are stupid. <laughs> We're not stupid anymore. This, I said, and what I've been trying to say, this Reagan era put into place a certain political economy where a neocon attitude about empire and deficit was wrapped in the cloth of faith and that very ideology pervades the institutions of our power. Are the people in those institutions, the people who hold power today are the heirs of this Reagan period. And we had this huge Iran-Contra scandal. And you know, if you go look at it, even there's allegations, and I'm not going to delve into it deeply, but there was many allegations that drugs were involved because there were people that wanted to fund these illegal activities, these globalist illegal activities, in violation of the Congress's laws. They had to fund it on their own. Like they had to control oil in Iraq. In the Kurdish area, the Kurds have all this oil, and they're in control of it because of American military power. Otherwise, the Iranians would take it away from them. Where are the profits going on that oil? How many operations have been established throughout the world to fund the globalist enterprise that have nothing to do with what we the people have knowledge of or possibly even in contradiction and, and in contravening our laws? And it came to the fore in Iran-Contra we played Daniel Inouye, Senator Inouye from Hawaii, several podcasts ago, talking about a secret army and a secret government here that they thought they'd uncovered. They didn't uncover it. 
They got one layer of it. It's going on to this day. Again, this is one of the more dangerous things that I've said. But as the people at MinGOP saw when I jumped up and told them to resign, I'm really not afraid. Part of that is age. You know, when you get to a certain age and you realize there aren't that many good years left, it makes you kind of brave. But no one wants to die. That's why I need all of us. All of us, we're one people, to recognize that the government we see and the government that interacts with us is not the government. We're looking at a BS story. We're living in a fascist state. Go back and look at all of the Nazis that were imported into this country under under Operation Paperclip into our institutions of power, the Darwinists who have perverted our American political process and turned us into a corporatocracy where we have certain businesses that are allied with government such that small business people can't even survive. This is totalitarianism breaking out in our alleged republic. But we still have the mechanisms of the republic at our disposal as the American people. So I urge every one of you to take your freedom seriously. I take my freedom seriously. I take my well-being seriously. From time to time throughout human history, peoples are called upon to preserve and protect freedom and well-being. This is one of those times. We are one people. Push out this content. Help free people create a political community. Let us organize in Minnesota and in every state because we still have a political process that could result in us restoring the republic, which means getting rid of these neocons, for example, at the top of Min GOP. That would be David Han, Alex Plekish, and Barb Sutter, the National Committee people. These people do not have the interests of our community at heart. These people are ex-military, ex-military. Barb Sutter's husband, Randy Sutter, is the chief executive of Congressional District 3. He's the chairperson of that congressional district. He's ex-military. David Hahn is ex-military. Alex Plekish is ex-military. Our state party is run by neocons. What are the neocons bringing us? Endless wars and crushing deficit, which will take away all of our well-being and all of our wealth. We, the people, have the power to involve ourselves in the process of self-governance. And if we do so, if we follow the model that was left to us by our founding fathers, because they, too, had their flat spots and shortcomings, but they left us a process of change that allows the republic to restore itself, just as we overcame slavery internally. The Republican Party, the party of Lincoln, overthrew the slavery regime because they realized and recognized that slavery 
slavery was equally damaging to the enslaver as it was to the enslaved. And in this time, today, we have to recognize as Republicans what it is to be a Republican, that empire is just as damaging to those who support the empire as to those who are enslaved by the empire. This is a new opportunity that has emerged for us at this time in American history to go into the political process. I'm asking for at least one day a year of every American citizen to become a delegate in your state party and to vote for who your party endorses to run as a candidate. Like here in Minnesota, we got a new guy. His name's Tarab. He's ex-military. He's a protege of Tom Emmer. They're running him for Congress. Joe Tarab, ex-work, an ex-employee of the Justice Department. This guy is a toady. This guy does not have any independent thought at all. He is a child of and a supporter of and a tool of empire. And the Republican Party is probably going to endorse him to run for Congress in one of our congressional districts. Fishback, Finstead, Stauber, Emmer, all of them are beholden to empire. They talk the game of America. But when you look at that $34 trillion debt, Tom, I never told the truth, Emmer, you can see that their actions and their words are not congruent. And it will be us, the American people, involving ourselves in this political process, demanding honesty and transparency and sacred honor from every participant in our society. Our demand for honor is what is going to liberate us from the shackle of empire. And on that note, I want to wish you a wonderful weekend. I look forward to your comments. Come to my social media. You can see that I'm learning from you and I'm incorporating your comments in the podcast because we're a community. I got to think up some good stuff for next week because the bar is high right now. Thank you for joining and I look forward to seeing you soon again. Elliot, could you just take us out with some beautiful music just to lighten us up on the way out? <laughs>